You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series, The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writers' Centre at writerscentre.com.au. episode 62 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? Oh, Valerie, to be honest with you, I'm actually quite exhausted. Why? Well, I had my week at Sydney Writers' Festival and it's like, it's like having a hangover. I feel like I've, yeah, I've got like a, I don't know, like a festival over or something because I just feel so incredibly tired and drained and happy and yeah it was it was pretty amazing week and and it's but it kind of takes a lot out of you it does doesn't it you were so busy I was very busy and um my my workshop on writing with children um went really really well I got some amazing feedback on that and I was so happy because you know there's always that I mean, it was three hours of me mm. talking, which, you know, could get incredibly dull if you think about it. <laughs> but fortunately, with the, I had a fantastic PowerPoint that my sister Maxabella put together. So at least we had stuff to look at. Yeah. Um, so I did that on the Wednesday. And then Thursday, I was uh, part of a fantastic panel at the State Library, which was all about social media it for writers. It was awesome. It was absolutely did hilarious. You, did you hear me heckling you? Well, I saw you, but I was just, <laughs> I, I, it was so funny too because I was sitting up there and, you know, you're sitting there smiling away and Walter Mason, who was the moderator, was just hilarious, man, yeah. talking yeah. about avocados on his elbows at one stage, which, you know, when you're discussing the most useful things social media can do for you, avocado on your elbows doesn't immediately come to mind. No. But um, anyway, so we're sitting there and we're doing our stuff and, and it was it was kind of just before lunch and it was had been quite a long day for most of the people sort of in the audience and there was a man sitting directly in front of me about halfway back who just kept falling asleep like oh. he was closing his eyes and you know it, it, all I could look at was him I just <laughs> I was sitting there like chatting away and all I could see was the man with his eyes closed halfway back it was hilarious oh maybe he had a hangover oh I think he was just really hungry and I, I don't blame him like I fully understand you know it's quite difficult to sit and listen for a long time um so that was on Thursday and then Sunday was family day oh yes and uh I was reading in the Enid Blyton story clubhouse which was like being in the secret seven clubhouse it was so awesome um but it was nuts I've never seen anything like it there were just kids and families everywhere and of course Andy Griffiths was there oh yes and anyone who um is on social media with me on either Twitter or Facebook will have seen my photo with Andy, which I have to tell you, the boys are so incredibly, like, I'm just their hero right now. <laughs> we got our book signed and the boys went to see him talk and um, he had a signing queue of 200 metres or more for six hours. Oh, my God. Goodness. He's like a rock star. He is honestly like I've never seen anything like it. He is a rock star. And it was just amazing to be, you know, nearby really. He actually so, signed for six hours? He, he literally sat there for six hours Aww. and signed books. He was – he's 
really um, generous, you know, with the kids. He was just like, yep, I'm here. I know that's what they want. And kids were bringing, they were walking down the queue at one stage saying, you know, it's a maximum of three books. And you'd see kids put like five books back in their bag. Like they'd bought every book they owned. Signed. Yeah, they just, he's an absolute rock star. It was, um, yeah, as I said, just so exciting to even just be part of it. I was really very excited. Yeah, so, yeah awesome. Back. So now that you've, you're coming down, what's what are you coming down doing? <laughs> oh, well, yesterday I didn't do much of anything. <laughs> I just recovered in the quiet space. Yes. Um, but, yeah, I'm just, I, I, I'm, you know, moving on. I've got a new uh, children's manuscript that I'm working on and um, I'm just, you know, going forward because that's what you do, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. So very exciting. But what about you? What have you been up to? Well, I'm also, you know, have a Sydney Writers' Festival hangover, but much less than you because, you know, you were much more heavily involved. Uh, I just really enjoyed, you know, soaking up the atmosphere, going to events, being around the place. One of the things I... I always get hungry during the Sydney Writers' Festival. I find the food options <laughs> really limited. So I kind of starve a lot during that time. So over the weekend I ate <laughs> to make up for it. <laughs> and I thought I would continue this theme of, you know, because it, the Sydney Writers' Festival, the theme is its thinking season. And now that the festival is over, we've moved straight into Vivid. Uh, so for those of you yes, who aren't from saw Sydney. saw that on Saturday night. Yeah, it, it, mm. Sydney has this wonderful, um, you know, couple of weeks or I'm not even sure for how long, um, during this time of year called Vivid where everything in the city is lit up and it's all extremely um, colourful and creative. The Opera House is lit up, the Harbour Bridge is lit up, every single ferry that's going across the water is lit up. So it's quite gorgeous. But Mm. it also has lots of really interesting seminars as well, some of whom are writers and some of whom aren't writers but they inspire a lot of creative thought. So, yeah. Yesterday, I went to a seminar, uh, like an all-day seminar with lots of different speakers, um, mainly about technology, but it also had creativity and performance as well, you know, the concert pianists there and and all that kind of thing. And um, in a few days, I'm going to see Matthew Weiner, who, of course, is the creator of Mad Men. And I think oh. what he's created with that with that wonderful television series is is just incredible. It's just mm. iconic now. Amazing. So yeah, I'm feeding my brain. A oh bit. wow! So, so I'll probably have a vivid hangover too. You probably will. You're going to be exhausted by next week. I know. Well, right. You won't know what to do with yourself. Mm. You'll need to go away to recover. <laughs> <laughs> and you've written a post about the Sydney Writers Festival. Oh, I have. I've just done a little bit of a recap of um, so three main takeaway points from each of my uh, presentations, the workshop and the panel, and and then just a bit of a you know, yay! I'm so excited. I met Andy Griffiths when it comes to the Family Day recap, <laughs> and uh, we'll put that link in the show notes. So, what else has been happening in the world of blogging and publishing and writing this week? Well, one of the most exciting things and most interesting things that happened this week is that the Australian Library and Information Association, which, you know, probably doesn't get a lot of press, generally <laughs> speaking, um, has announced Australia's most borrowed library books for the oh, first well, they, quarter of They would be the ones to do it. Yeah, well, it, they do it to mark the start of Library and Information Week, which runs from the 25th to the 31st of May. Um, so, um, but I found it really interesting because pretty much the um, – 
the most they, they do adult the borrowed books by category they have adult fiction non-fiction and children's books mm-hmm. so the most borrowed books in the adult fiction uh category um there's a lot of crime in there as you would probably imagine that often happens mm-hmm. but there's a fairly good um array of Australian authors. So yes. we have um, The Rosie Project, of course, by Graham Simpson. And if you, he was our very first interview on the podcast. So yep. yay, Graham. I met yep. him in the green room on Sunday, face to face for the first time. Yeah, that was good. Yeah. Um, and of course, Burial Rights by Hannah Kent is there. Tim Winton's Eerie is there. And The Narrow Road to the Deep North by Richard Flanagan. So there's actually quite a few um, Australian authors in that section. Um, but when it comes to the children's section, it's there's a very high percentage of overseas authors, and particularly in young adult, there's only two Australian authors. Um, and one of those is Ellie Marnie, who um, has written a series called Every Breath, Every Move, Every... I can't think what the third one is. Um, but I met her at the Somerset Literary Festival, which I was at earlier this year, and she's... Um, and I've read her books, and they're fantastic, so I can see why they're doing so well. And the other one for... The other Australian rep there is Marcus Zusak with the mm. book thief but all of the others are pretty much US authors John Green obviously gets a high yes. representation there um Percy Jackson's in there the maze runner pretty much what you'd expect I think as far as blockbuster YA is concerned but yes. yeah it's an interesting thing I think it's always worth having a look to see what people are borrowing I think what's interesting with non-fiction is that three out of the ten are Jamie Oliver. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's the, it's the cookbook thing, isn't it? Like right. he's, he's incredibly popular. Um, there's a lot of food representation in the nonfiction area. Yes. Do you, are you a library member? Do you borrow? I am a library member and I love libraries, but I don't borrow very often at all because I always forget to return. <laughs> Oh. So I go to libraries. I, I love hanging out at them. I love browsing. I love looking up all the funny little, you know, catalogues and things that you can get in the archive section. uh, If I go overseas, I'll go to a library and I'll just sit there and I'll just, you know, absorb and I'll even get a library card with the intention of not to borrow. (laughs) But um, I just know myself and I always end up forgetting to bring the library books back and therefore I don't actually borrow, but I certainly love them and support them. Okay, fantastic. Mm. Well, we're all mad borrowers here. Yeah, because you have, our, you've got yeah. more discipline than me. Well, not only that, but because we're regional, we, um, Yo, we don't yes. actually have fines. You we don't what? have the no, we don't have the fine system that you have. Oh my god! Because I remember when well, no, yeah, because I remember when I lived in Marrickville, and you know it was a dollar fifty per item per day, and yeah. like we'd end up, you know, we pretty much could have just gone to the bookshop and yes, bought exactly it out the by the time, yeah. yeah. And then we came down here, and you kind of get a letter after three months reminding you that you you know, probably should take them back, but there's no fine. Wow. Um, which for us is fantastic because the boys borrowed 10 at a time and um, and I tend to borrow a few as well. So we are pretty good. Like we get there pretty much, uh, I think we get three weeks. We do get there pretty much every three weeks for various reasons. So um, we're not too bad, but, you know, mm. I've got kids. Anyone who, who's got kids knows what they're like with losing library books. It's, oh. you know, you find them seven years later under the yeah. mattress, you know, that kind of stuff. Anyway. <laughs> so I understand you, you have, well, I understand you've got for us a link about paragraphs. Oh, yes, I do. So this was an interesting um, article that I came across in The Guardian and they're asking whether or not the writing is on the wall for the paragraph. Um, 
And the premise is that paragraphs are shrinking so quickly and if they continue to shrink at their current rate, they'll soon cease to exist altogether should we care. Um, so it's kind of the basic premise is that if there's two sentences in a paragraph that most of us won't get to the end of the paragraph. <laughs> well, the, according to some estimates, the average time spent on a web page is 15 seconds. It doesn't give you long, does it, to grab the attention of somebody? Um, and, but, you know, the paragraphs are getting shorter and shorter. Now, from my perspective as someone who's written for, you know, written feature articles for a long time, yeah. I have long been a fan of the short paragraph because that's how you write feature articles or articles for newspapers. It tends to be like keep keep the paragraph short to keep the text flow, you know, easy to follow and stuff. Um, and that was something that when I started writing fiction, um, I mean, obviously, it's hard to get out of a habit like that. But yeah. you also realise the you realise the emphasis and the importance of, of that a longer paragraph can have and yes. to a story. Yeah. So I, I'd be interested. Like, do you do you honestly think paragraphs might disappear? Well, I hope not. I think it's really dumb when people send me stuff where every sent every paragraph is well, every sentence is a new paragraph. I think. I think not very good things about them. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's quite interesting you say that because they've got a picture here of a of an old fashioned reader. You know, Fluff is a big cat. She has a big basket. Dick will bring the basket for Fluff, and that's what it kind of what. If you have one sentence per paragraph, mm. you you do end up looking a little bit like a kid's reader. Yes, it's very simplistic. But you know, the the argument is that that's what what readers now need and expect. So. Um, and they 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 do a a little bit of a um an overview here of the history of the paragraph and how you know over time it's just getting shorter and shorter and shorter um but I tend to agree with you I think that if you disip- like paragraphs allow us to put different thoughts about the one subject into one in, into a like a manageable yeah. readable section yeah. um if we all go down to one sentence per paragraph it's going to make the journey through the text very very difficult i think Would yes you agree? and also paragraphs are used to you know emphasize a certain point or mm. to give pause to a particular thing where you need some breathing space i'm for t- i'm team paragraph yeah, I think I'm on team paragraph too. I, sure. I I do agree that if you're if you're writing a magazine feature or a uh, a newspaper feature, great big long chunks of text are of no use to you there because yes. you readers just find it very. You know, if you if I've got to fight my way through, then you know that's it's no fun, and I'm not going to continue. Um, but you know, the, the the varying length of paragraph is an essential thing when it comes to fiction. So don't forget that. Yes. Stay with the paragraph, people. Absolutely. Stay with the paragraph. Moving Uh, on to something quite different. This link comes to us via Dean. Thank you, Dean. And it's from the Columbia Journalism Review, and it's called A New Website Wants to Disrupt How Freelancers Do Business. Now, at this stage, this new website is really catering to the US, and it may or may not expand its tentacles over the pond. However, it was formed by someone called Scott Carney, who is a book author and journalist, and it's called Word Rates. So this bit, this part of it isn't that new in that he once created like a Google Doc and it's kind of like a crowdsourced spreadsheet open for anyone to edit so that you could input all the different freelance rates in there. So it's quite handy and he's, you know, opened that up to beyond a Google Doc kind of thing. However, a section of this website, Word Rates, is, a, is the interesting part and it's called Pitch Lab. And... 
sounds good in theory, but I'd be interested to hear your thoughts as well because it's it aims to connect writers with mentors who will represent and pitch writers' ideas to magazine editors. So it's kind of like where you have um, uh, a less experienced writer. Um, mm. Well, it says that two things can happen with Pitch Lab. One is where a less experienced writer can pitch a more experienced writer and, you know, use that person's advice to to guide them through getting a pitch through to a magazine. Mm. But then the other option is that you have two experienced writers pitching and one of the writers represents their, the work of the other writer to the magazine, which I think is just highly bizarre. Like an Be- agent. Kind of, yeah. It's like you're brokering a deal. Mm. I know. Why, why would you do that? Well, as one this writer says, it almost comes down to a psychology to psychology more than hardcore business practice. When I pitch a story, sorry, when I pitch a magazine a story that I love and have spent much time on, I'm not in a great negotiating position because I'm so attached to my work and realize this is the editor I'm going to have to work with. I'm negotiating business with this person who I'll also have a creative process with later. However, if someone gave me a piece and I went to the same editor, I think I'm in a better negotiating position, you know, because they don't care kind of thing. Oh, so it's more about me getting a higher rate for my story? Uh, Oh, you're too close to the story. You don't want to – you just want to separate the business part of it from the creative part of it. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, no, weird. Yeah, weird. That's exactly (laughs) what I thought. (laughs) I just just think that – I mean, any editor is going to want to, if you can't pitch me the story, how are you going to write the story? Or how are you going, how how do I know that um, you're actually going to be able to follow through and do what you need to do? I mean, at the end of the day, most of the time, the word rates are set anyway. So it's not like I'm going to be able to negotiate a higher price. Okay, so let's imagine I'm I'm um, representing you. Yeah. Um, Personally, I would send you in to represent me, but that's a whole nother story. Um, <laughs> but say I'm representing you. I, I like. It's not like um, I'm going to be able to really negotiate a higher rate. I'm not going to go, oh, sorry, you know, Valerie's not going to do it for that price. You should probably pay her twice as much. It's not mm. going to work like that because most publications have pretty much a set word rate. Mm. Um, so I don't really understand what the value would be. Like are they going to negotiate? Am I going to negotiate all the edits with them as well or are you actually going to deal with Bizarre. that? You know? Yeah, but what, what it does, you, you also get a commission for it. So it oh, actually I get a makes it yeah, you, oh, it makes it's it, getting better. Yeah, it makes it more expensive for the editor. Yeah, I I I, I can't see it. I, I don't really see it taking no. off. I still think that the best way to to get freelance work is to practice your pitches over Absolutely. and over again until you get them right, and and network with with you know industry people, pe- people who are writing, people who are editing. I mean, that's how that's how the best freelance work. But even if you are too scared to network, if you're at the very beginning of your journey, just pitch, Mm. you know, you're not going to get anywhere unless you pitch and you've got to pitch yourself because that's the best way to learn. Yeah, exactly. Work out what's going wrong. So move on to something quite different. Uh, I came across this link. It's a book review of a book called Trouble in the Heartland. And oh. I know that there will be a small group of listeners out there who will understand what I mean by Trouble in the Heartland. Oh, and yes. you'll recognise those lines from a Springsteen song. And in fact, this short story is a whole series of 
uh, sorry, this anthology of short stories yeah. is a whole series of short stories that are crime fiction inspired by the songs of Bruce Springsteen. Oh, that's so cool. basically, yeah, 41 writers were assigned a Springsteen song each and told to write a short story inspired by it. So I only came across this uh, in the last couple of days. I'm absolutely ordering it on Amazon because I know every Springsteen song there is. So I can't wait to read it. It's a great list of authors too, like Dennis Lehane's in there. You can't go wrong, can you, really? Like it's a terrific – yeah, I think it would be great. I saw him – when he came out last time oh. um, up at the Hunter Valley and it was he was amazing. I just, he was amazing. Wow. Yeah, so I'd probably read it based just on the fact of that. There you go. Yeah, there you, you go. I'll, I'll lend it to you. Thanks. Springsteen fans all round. Yes, exactly. All right. So okay. move on to our writing book this week. Yep. It's not actually about the craft of writing. It's um, I bought this when I was in America recently and it's called How I Became a Famous Novelist. By oh. <laughs> yes, How I Became a Famous Novelist by Steve Healy. So when I first picked it up, I thought it was one of these, you know, books that I often buy about writing. Mm. Um, but uh, it's not. It's basically satirical. And uh, it's he's, Steve Healy uh, has been a writer for 30 Rock, The Office and American Dad. So oh. basically, it's uh, it says that it's the hilarious tale of how Pete Tarslaw's pile of garbage, as in his book, became the most talked about, read, admired, and reviled novel in America. It will change everything you know about literature, appearance, truth, beauty, and those people out there who still care about books. So, oh, yes, interesting. So. Have you started? You've read it, or you haven't no, started? I haven't yet. read it yet. I'm going okay. to read it. Yeah. Well, I'd like to hear hear about that. It sounds really interesting. Yeah, for sure. Hmm. I just love, you, you know, it's all, up. it's all very meta, isn't it? Sort of writing about writing. And... <laughs> <laughs> is that why it appealed to you, Val? Yeah. The meta aspect? This is why I don't go to the library because I buy them all. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and authors love people like you. They really exactly. do. Exactly. I, I remember talking to Angelo Lukakis once, who's the, you know, head of the Australian Society of Authors, and he was talking about how e-books were no good for authors because of this reason and this reason. Um, and uh, I said, but if I love the e-book, I go out and buy the print book. You buy both. <laughs> I buy both, yes. Anyway. You're a crazed book buyer. <laughs> who, who is our writer in residence? Oh, well, it's quite exciting because we've had several requests via Twitter and email and, and, and other various nooks and crannies that we offer. Um that have been asking us for some discussion about uh, children's publishing. So, of course, we have done our best to um, fulfil your every desire, listeners, because that's what we do. And um, we have interviewed the fabulous Suzanne O'Sullivan, who is the associate publisher for Lothian Children's Books, which is the children's imprint of Ashette Australia. And full disclosure, Suzanne is uh, my publisher at Ashette. And so we had a fantastic chat about you know, children's publishing in general, YA, what she's looking for, um, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that if this is an area that you're interested in in writing, that you'll find this incredibly useful. Suzanne O'Sullivan is the Associate Publisher of Children's Books at Ashet Australia, which was named on the weekend as the Australian Publisher of the Year at the Leading Edge Books Conference. She has worked in the book industry for over a decade and has spent most of that time in children's books, editing everything from board books to YA slash crossover fiction. And 
um, in the spirit of disclosure, I should also say that Suzanne is my most excellent associate publisher at Ashet. So, Suzanne, how about we start by you telling us a little bit about yourself? How did you get into children's publishing and why? Well, I knew when I uh, finished my degree, which was an arts degree with majoring in English at uni, uh, that I wanted to get into publishing. I'd worked in bookstores in the last couple of years of high school and right through uni. Um, I didn't know then exactly what area I wanted to be in. Um, and I started working in legal publishing, which was very, very dry. Mm. Um, and because I was finding that not quite stimulating, I decided to do some part-time study at the same time and my job happened to be just down the road from Macquarie University and I was looking into courses there I saw that they had a a very highly regarded masters in children's literature Mm. and I thought well I've always loved selling kids books in the bookstores that I'd worked in and I'd studied some children's literature in my undergrad degree so I thought I would get into that and I absolutely loved it um and that made me realize that those were the books that I really wanted to be working on. And then I just kept trying and trying until I was lucky enough to, to get a job actually in children's publishing. So where was your first job? Like, is it, was that sort of something, was it a, an entry level sort of position or did you go straight in as a publisher or how does it work? Yeah, so I started uh, in legal publishing as a production editor. Mm-hmm. So that was a job that involved... Um, copy editing, but also more production uh, things like formatting text and getting it all ready for for, uh, printing or Mm -hmm. for publishing online. Um, And then I worked as a junior editor in educational publishing Mm. and then uh, another junior editor role in children's books and then, yeah, gradually worked my way up and is children's fiction something that you've always enjoyed reading? Like, is, was it a, is it a, I mean, have you always been a reader of YA, et cetera? Or, you know, was that something that you came to when you when you decided that it was an area you wanted to go into? Um, I suppose I never, never really stopped reading it. Um, I was at uni um, when Harry Potter started to take off. Mm. Um, I, in fact, I remember in first year uni, um, I heard someone, one of my, seminars, it was completely off topic, um, talking about Harry Potter and how great it was. And at that point, I think there were three books out or the third book had just come out and I immediately read those. Um, and, you know, then a few other books that came along, I never felt any kind of stigma about still reading them. I was relatively young, but they were still for me. Um, and then, you know, once I... Um, realized that was what I wanted to work in. And of course, as a bookseller, you're reading all sorts of things Mm. to sell to your customers. So now as the associate publisher of children's books at Ashet, how many manuscripts do you receive a week into your offices? Um, That varies. I would say I get sent um, at least one thing every day. We don't accept... um, unsolicited manuscripts so those are things that are coming from agents um, from uh, foreign rights departments or overseas agents or from um, authors that we've already worked with or recommendations that have come through um, people that we've worked with uh, or again you know people that I've met at a conference or something like that okay Um, yeah and is there a reason that you don't accept unsolicited manuscripts 
Uh, mostly just the lack of uh, of eyes in the office. Really, right. we um, time and space. Yeah, so we want to be able to look at at everything that we get. Um, and it's unfortunately we just don't have have enough time and people to to look at absolutely everything. So we try to keep it manageable. We okay. do accept adult unsolicited manuscripts. It's just children's at the moment. We're not okay. And of the manuscripts that you are receiving, you know, is there a is there a trend to one towards one section of of children's publishing? Like, are you getting a lot of YA? Are you getting a lot of middle grade? Are you getting a lot of picture books? Like, what's the um, what kind of percentages are you looking at? Um, I'm getting a, a lot of YA. Um, even though I don't publish a great deal of YA, um, the next biggest area that I receive is probably picture books, mm-hmm. um, which is good because I publish a lot of picture books. I don't see as much middle grade as I would like to. I think that a, a lot of people are um, uh, really keen to get in to the YA area that I think maybe could give a bit more thought to where the middle grade might be better for them. And be what's for the, um, why do you think that people are, you know, shying away from middle grade? Is it, is it an age group thing? Is it more difficult to write? Is it like, is it just a sort of like trying to come up with something that's not wimpy kid? I mean, what's the, what do you think is the, um, uh, you know, barricade there? Uh, I suppose there might be an element of it seeming a bit harder to write. Um, I think there's a big perception that YA is is massive, which it is to some degree, but it tends to be a small handful of authors that are huge blockbuster sellers um, and then a, a, a long tail of... Everyone else. Of everyone else. Yeah. Um, but I think there's a... a very popular perception that YA is where it's at and you've got to be writing YA because that's what people want. Um, And whereas I think if you look at the the middle grade market, that's also incredibly strong. Um, Maybe people, yeah, don't quite realise that. Okay. So do you have a favourite, like as a publisher yourself, do you have a favourite category? Like, I mean, you're, you're sort of doing everything from board books to, as you say, you know, some YA. Is there... Is there something, one of those sections that really makes your heart sing? Um, not really, to be honest. Uh, anything that's really good, I love. Mm. <laughs> so when I get something um, that's a really great picture book, I'm really excited about that. But then, you know, when I, I open a new YA manuscript and it might be sensational as well, and then that'll be my favourite thing at the moment. So, yeah, lucky to, to like all the different areas that I work on. So, okay, then that, so that then begs the question because, you know, there, there's a huge difference between a picture book, um, you know, which has got, you know, probably 500 very, very carefully considered words in it, if that, if it's a board book, it's probably got fewer, um, through to, you know, like YA, which might be, you know, 60, 65,000, obviously also very carefully considered words. But, like, what are you looking for when you open a manuscript and, and how do you know you found it? I guess that's the big question. Mm, um, Because that's the easy question for me to ask you, isn't it? You're like, oh, please don't (laughs) ask me that. I think how you know you've found it is just um, a gut reaction on a lot of levels. It's an informed gut reaction from reading a lot and the things that you've worked on over the years. Um, But I'd say what I'm looking for primarily is really good writing with a really strong voice, Um, something that just speaks to me very directly and 
feels feels new in some way. It doesn't right. necessarily mean it has to be a, a completely brand new genre that the author's invented, but that the the voice is a voice that feels fresh to me. You know, um, I get a bit tired of reading things and going, oh yes, I recognise exactly who your influences are. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Would you say that was one of the most common mistakes that you see? Is that sort of wearing your influences on your sleeve? Um, yeah, I don't. I wouldn't say a mistake necessarily. I think it's a thing that comes with practice and with revision and rewriting. Um, that the more people write, the better they get at creating their own voice. Right. Okay. So, what would you say are the most sort of common? What are the most common things you see that would make you, you know, say no to a manuscript? Let's put it like that. Um, yeah, a, a overly derivative um, voice mm-hmm. or story as well. As I said, a story doesn't have to be completely original and unique, but it it can't be too indebted to to anything in particular. Yeah. Um, Another thing that I find a lot, particularly in kids' books, is wanting to tell me everything up front. Okay. To, for the, you know, the too much description and the complete backstory of every character right from the very beginning. Right. Um, I, I like to get right into the story, and I think most kids do as well. Yeah. Do you find it difficult, like, I guess for, from my perspective, you know, as someone who does write middle grade, you're kind of writing for that that ten to, you know, fourteen or whatever sort of age group, but I mean, you're obviously not ten to fourteen. Like, do you have to then put yourself into the position of a ten to fourteen year old to read this stuff, or how do you how do you read it and think yes, that's going to resonate with the market? That's a tricky one because it's very difficult. But I think what you need as a publisher and also as an author is to be able to remember quite clearly what it felt like to be mm. a kid at that particular age mm. um, and to also t- try to keep up to speed with, you know, what are the other things that kids are not just reading but the games that they're playing and the movies that they like and all of that now. Um, so I do try to, to think about, you know, is this appealing to me personally and it has to be on some level, mm. um, but also would this appeal to me as a nine-year-old boy (laughs) and sometimes uh, an author might have pitched something in a particular way that you read it and think oh I I don't think they're right in saying that this is for a a nine-year-old but what they've got here has a lot of potential it could potentially be something for a a 13-year-old okay so you just get in touch with your inner nine-year-old and and judge it based on that Mm. Mm, okay so when people, because um, you said uh, that you do publish, you know, quite a few picture books. Uh, so when you get picture books, do you are you judging them solely on text or, you know, because I, I think when people write picture books, they probably try to describe everything that should happen in the picture as well as what's happening in the text. And, I mean, uh, is that is that how you like to see them or what, what do you like to see in a picture, like in a picture book pitch, so to speak? I, I like to see just the text. Um, and to only have a description of what um, the author would like to go in the illustrations if it's something that is absolutely essential. Um, 
you know, for example, in a lot of picture books, there's a gap between the text and the illustration. So there's mm. something, a bit of a dissonance there, something that isn't described in the text but is in the illustrations and that makes the story whole. Um, so, for example, then the author might want there to be a wordless spread where we see a particular thing happening. Right. Or it might be like um, Drac and the Gremlin where the text is describing this, you know, fantastic science fiction adventure but the pictures reveal that it's actually just two kids playing in the backyard. So yeah. a bit of a, you know, a one sentence at the beginning of the story um, would be all that's needed there. But um, the, the text has to work uh, on its own merits. Okay. How do you then choose an illustrator to work with the text? Because it's, it's a very collaborative thing, a picture book, isn't it? I think a lot of people maybe don't realise how collaborative it can be because, I mean, I know a lot of people I've spoken to who have have wanted to do picture books you know they they want to work with someone they know to create the pictures and then send you the whole thing which I know is not necessarily how publishers like to work no it's very unusual for it to um to come from the author and illustrator together there are certain circumstances I've got a book coming out later this year um called Our Dog Knows Words by Peter and Lucy Goldthorpe um, all right where Peter has written the text and he's obviously a very acclaimed uh, author and illustrator in his own right. Yes. But in this instant, his daughter, Lucy, is illustrating and it's her um, oh. debut book. So something like that where it's um, they've come up with it together and there's that connection. So it does happen, but 95% or higher of cases, the author sends us the text um, and we discuss here who we think would be a good illustrator for it and we consult with the author um, to make sure that they're happy with that as well. Um, but that's something that um, generally happens in the, the publishing house, the, those discussions of, of, you know, what's the right direction for this text, who do we think would be good, um, what's going to work in the market right now, all those things. So you kind of, as an author, you you really need to be willing to let go of it a bit as well, don't you, so to realise that it is a collaboration and that you need to work with um, the publisher to get the best possible product. Definitely. And that is something that I see quite a bit from um, uh, people that haven't had a book published before um, and in, in submissions where they're really saying this is exactly what the pictures should look like. But the illustrator is basically an equal creator of the book with the author. So there needs to be space for them to interpret the story themselves. I mean, the the author always gets to see the the roughs as the illustrator is working and to have their input. But yeah, it could be, it's a difficult task, I think, to be able to, to step back and say, yes, I've written this story, but someone else is interpreting it now. And yeah, to have that space for them to do that is very important. So you're basically creating a springboard for the story as a whole to kind of, you know, for the picture book as a whole to sort of take flight, aren't you? Because you, you're you giving the, the basis and then you have to allow someone else to come in and, and um, as you say, interpret that. Exactly, yeah. So with regards to the manuscripts that you do receive, like if you, how much work are you willing to do with a writer if you think that there's promise but the manuscript isn't, maybe not currently working in its in its current format like as you suggested before like perhaps the person has envisaged it for nine year olds but you're thinking that maybe that what they're presenting would work better if it was rethought for 13 year olds mm -hmm. 
it it depends uh, on a sort of case by case basis on a, a lot of things. One um, would be how much potential I think it has and how how close it is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because I don't want to string people along too much. If I read something and I felt that the if the author went back and made uh, some revisions and resubmitted it that it would be in a really good position um, to get published, mm-hmm. then I would definitely do that. But if it was a case of, I think it needs to be rewritten altogether, I might you know, send some general, general notes, general feedback, um, but not necessarily want them to yeah, so leave a it up huge to amount author. of work expecting that yeah. that I will definitely pick it up. Yeah. The other constraint is, is again, time. Um, there might be something that I, I look at and I think it's got a lot of potential, but if it hits me at a particularly busy time, I might not be able to give the author as much detailed feedback as I might like to. Okay. So um, on that, I guess I get how many projects are you working on at any given time? Many. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I I have uh, around twenty books on my list for two thousand and fifteen. Right. Um, and at any given time, um, you know, I might have have one that I've just done a structural edit on it. Uh, a, another one where we're working on the cover design. Um, another one where the say a picture book and the illustrators just submitted their roughs and we're going over them. So I, I could have around 10 projects at any given time wow. that I'm actively working on. That's kind of interesting though for you too, isn't it? I guess, you know, is there, do you have a favourite part of the process? Like are you someone who loves a good structural edit or would you sort of rather sit around and talk about illustrations and cover designs? Like what's your, which, which bit do you enjoy the most? Um, that's a tricky one. It, I'm good at tricky questions. It varies. I, I love getting roughs from an illustrator. Mm. Uh, that's always a very exciting stage of a picture book when it, you first start to to really see what it's going to be like. It's always very exciting. And I, I also just often think that those are really beautiful illustrations because when the illustrator's not worrying about getting it perfect and getting all the, the details in there and having it all polished so there's a real looseness Mm. often to their work that's quite lovely. Lovely. So um, here's the big question, I guess. What are you looking for at the moment? Is there anything in particular that you need to, you know, fulfil your every desire? <laughs> um, picture books, always looking for new picture books um, and also really looking for illustrators. Okay. Um, yeah, I think that in some ways it's harder to find um new illustrators than it is new authors. Perhaps there aren't quite as many established channels. So how do you go about finding them? Do people submit, you know, possible work to you or are you sort of always actively looking at what's around? Yep, people do send us portfolios, but we also find um, people online. There are a few different websites uh, for illustrators to post their portfolios on. Um, I attend things like uh, the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators organise a portfolio day each year wow. um, where illustrators um, submit their portfolios and uh, publishers from all different companies come to, wow. to look at those. Um, and sometimes we'll spot someone's work 
on something quite unrelated, you know, in a, an exhibition somewhere or they're selling their postcards at a market or something like that. Wow. So always on the lookout. Always. Well, speaking of always being on the, on the lookout, I guess I need to ask you the question of, you know, whether you look at author platform when you consider a manuscript. I mean, with children's, um, with children's fiction, is it, is it difficult for a children's author to establish a platform before publication? Are you, are you looking at the, that sort of, you know, what they're doing as far as raising their profile is concerned? Um, to some extent, yeah. One thing um, that is good to know is how willing an author is to put themselves out there and promote themselves. Right. Um, so, you know, even if they don't necessarily have a huge following already, if we can see that they're keen and they're looking to make connections and market themselves, that can be quite helpful. It's not essential, um, but it certainly can help a lot. Okay. Do you find most people are these days or is there still sort of a reticence about it in a way? No, I think most people are, are quite okay. keen and quite understanding. The other big thing for children's authors and illustrators is school presentations. Yes. So travelling around to schools, particularly during book week. So obviously that's not something that you can do as an unpublished author. No. But it's it's something that can make a big difference. So if I knew that someone absolutely positively didn't want to do anything like that, you know, depending on the book, that could make a difference. It might be something where we think, oh, well, that's not quite the, the school's market, so it doesn't really matter, or, you know, for whatever reason, that's not a factor. Okay. But sometimes that can make a big difference, okay. knowing that someone will be really putting the book as much as they can. So I, I think it's probably fairly well, you know, regarded that children's fiction is actually, it's a very strong part of the publishing industry at the moment. It's selling very well. Do you, why, why do you think that's the case? Like, is it driven by YA, like people think, or is it, like, why, why, why is children's fiction selling where perhaps adults' fiction is not doing as well? Uh, I think there is an element of the the big YA smashes of recent years and mm. that a lot of adult reading is actually of YA mm. books. Very true. I think that is a factor, but it's not the whole story. I think that people still give kids books as gifts a lot, yes. which makes a big difference. And there's, you know, people really want their kids to be reading. Even people that might not be big readers themselves, it's important to them to see their children reading. They give them books, they encourage them to buy books. So I, I, which is lovely to see, really. Yeah, absolutely. With all, all the other things it. going on in kids' lives. <laughs> I'm all for it. All right, well, let's just finish up with our favourite last question, which is uh, your top three tips for people writing for children. Mm. It's always an easy one just to finish up with. Lovely. Yeah. Top three tips. Yeah, um, sure. Well, my first one would be to read a lot. Yes, uh, and read a lot of current kid stuff as well mm. because you, you, know, you need to know what else is out there and what appeals to kids. Okay, so you can't just rely on your readings of the Famous Five from exactly. 20 years ago. Yes. Okay. Yep. As much as we love as much as we love. Yep. my number two would be to revise your work a lot. Even if you're only writing a 200-word picture book, it really needs to be polished don't write something and then fire it off to a publisher right away, you know, put it in a drawer and come back to it two weeks later, have another look, see if there's anything you could do better mm -hmm. in that. 
Um, and my number three tip would be to just try and speak as directly and clearly as you can to kids. Okay. I think that that's what really works in children's writing. Okay. So no overwriting for children. I think avoid it as much as possible <laughs> is a good idea. <laughs> All right, Suzanne, well, thank you so much for your time today. Um, we really appreciate it and I know that our listeners will appreciate it because we've had lots and lots of requests for um, a discussion about children's fiction. So um, we appreciate it. Congratulations on the Publisher of the Year Award. I'm sure that's been celebrated with much champagne in the office. And, um, it certainly has. We shall uh, leave it there. Thank you very much. Thank you, Alison. Wow, great interview, Al. Yeah, it was terrific. I mean, it's, I just, uh, you know, it's a fantastic thing to be able to ask um, all the questions that anyone might ever wish to know about these things. And um, um, I, I found the, her comments about picture books and the way that, you know, they choose illustrators and, and the way that she likes to receive manuscripts. And, um, yeah, just, you know, it's, it's inside information that I think makes it so much easier when you're coming to submit your own manuscripts. So I hope, um, I hope you guys have found that really useful. Awesome. What have you got for us in the web pick app pick section for us this week, Valerie? Our app pick for this week is something that I use when when I'm writing and when I do need to concentrate or block stuff out. You know, because last night my partner had on, you know, all those football shows that are on the back page and <laughs> on, and Bounce and the footy show and Talking Footy and, well, I don't even know which one it was. All manner had of to, footy, footy, footy. Yeah, yeah, had to get rid of it. And so um, depending on what I'm writing, I choose different types of playlists or radio on Spotify. Okay. Do you use Spotify? I do not. Don't you? No, because, you know, Valerie, we've discussed this before. I don't like noise when I'm writing. But maybe – but you can use Spotify when you're not writing. (laughs) Yeah, I know. But, yeah, no, I just – no, I don't really. Yeah, no. Okay. I'm very old school. Well, of course, all anyone, sorts of things. anyone who happens to not be familiar with Spotify, it's streaming music and there are bazillions of different songs ranging from classical to the latest releases to musicals to whatever. We often have Spotify on in the office at the Australian Writers' Centre on a Friday, which typically is musical Friday. So you're, if you walk past, you can hear us belting out, you know, um, one Day More from Les Mis or Let It Go from Frozen. Or... You actually have musical playlists. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Why you... was that funny? Oh, you guys are so hilarious. So it's like Show Tune Friday. Show Tune Friday usually starts around midday, you know. Okay. Yeah, in the afternoon. Can but any you know, of you actually sing? Well, we think so. <laughs> I'm feeling really sorry for your neighbours right now, but that's okay. That's great. I love it. But right, right now, because, yeah, right now because it's not Friday and I need to concentrate and get a bit of writing done today, I have uh, J.S. Bach's Well-Tempered Clavier Book One. Oh. Yes. Great. So, you know, I need some classical to just get – because if there are lyrics, I will probably sing, so I need the, the non-lyric version. Yeah, it's interesting. I think music and writing is quite an interesting thing. You know the way it affects your writing. I, I just can't. I can't have lyrics, and I know lots of people that will put together playlists for books. Yes. So if they're working on a particular style of book or a particular era or whatever, they will put together an entire playlist related to that book. Um, but yeah, no, I, you know, again, I come back to the silence. 
the beautiful, beautiful silence. Yeah, because I was talking to Michael Cunningham, who, of course, wrote The Hours, mm-hmm. and um, in one of his books uh, he wanted to um, – he did exactly that. He put a playlist together and he would leave his apartment every morning and go to – another little apartment which was really his like writing space and he would put on that playlist first thing to get him into the zone and then he would just write all day the that book wow that's Mm. amazing Mm. all day well that actually leads quite nicely down into our working writers tip for this week Valerie And I'd just like to say, Dean, I hope you enjoyed that segue because Dean does like to laugh at our segues and I'm just putting that out there. So uh, the question comes uh, has come to us from Matt Shaw via Twitter. When I sit down to write, I have this compulsion to edit the stuff I wrote yesterday and waste time I should be spending getting the next 2,000 words down. Any tips on resisting the lure of the red pencil? Now, that was obviously two tweets because that was well and truly more than 140 characters. Mm. Um, but what do, you, what do you say, Val? What, like what, how do I avoid the, you know, the seduction of the red pencil when I should actually just be forging ahead with my new work? Well, how do you avoid the seduction of a donut? You just don't eat it. Oh. So just don't eat it. I mean, <laughs> isn't that right? Yeah. It's hard though. Like people, it is difficult for people. They because you know the thing is that if you fix what you wrote yesterday, you feel like you've achieved something. Mm. Whereas if you sit down to write the next five hundred words or two, I mean, I think his biggest issue, personally, Matt, I would say, is I think that if you are sitting there thinking I need to write two thousand words, that would have me running for the red pencil as well. Mm. I think if you say to yourself, I'm going to write five hundred words, yep. and if I get those five hundred words down, then I can go back and edit if I want to, that yep. you will actually find that you, A, avoid the, the lure of the red pencil and that you probably will write 2,000 anyway. Yep. Um, it's that whole thing of I, I talked about this in my workshop last uh, Wednesday when I was talking about writing with children because you don't often get large chunks of time when you have kids. So you really have to sit down and start. Like you can't be faffing around and you can't be sort of deciding what you're going to do and you can't be waiting for the muse. You just have to sit down and start writing. And um, lots of people will go back and edit because they feel like they're getting in the zone when in yeah. actual fact all you're doing is wasting time. So I've always said you don't sit down, you don't look, you don't put write novel in your diary because that is just <laughs> going to destroy you. You put write 500 words because 500 words or even 200 words, it's manageable. It gets you started. And once you're started, then you will continue. And it's amazing how it's the starting that's the most difficult bit. So all you're doing with your editing is putting off the start. So say to yourself, I'm going to write 500 words. And then if I still feel like it, I can go back and edit chapter one or whatever it is you feel like mm. you've got to do because you will have made progress and you probably find that you don't actually, you're so busy, you're in the zone by then and you're so busy writing that you you, you can resist the donut, Val. <laughs> well, I think that your advice was a lot better than mine on that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Matt. Uh, <laughs> At least anyway. Al gave you some good advice. So I hope that's helpful to to you and to all the other mats out there that are struggling because I know that it is it is a thing Val lots and yes. lots of people have it as a thing so I think True. the thing you've got to trick yourself sometimes there's just you know mind games it's all about mind games I don't I don't know about the tricking yourself well I tend to reward myself so I go if I write 2,000 words I can have a donut <laughs> <laughs> it just always comes back to the donut. Yes. 
<coughs> All right. So what what have you got? What's happening this week? What's what going forward? Let's, going let's forward, moving forward. Just, I've always you know, loved that. It's just I've got a lot going on at home. I've got carpets being put in. I've got oh. tradespeople. I've got so it's just all a bit disruptive at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, so in in interwoven with the whole theme of feeding my brain this week with the various you know writers and seminars that I'm going to. Yes, I've got a lot of uh, it's a hive of activity at home. Mm-hmm. However, I thought I would mention to everyone because we know that a lot of our listeners love reading, and if you want to be in the draw to win a $200 Booktopia voucher. Just make sure that you've signed up for the newsletter of the Australian Writers' Centre. If you have already signed up, don't worry, you can still enter again. Um, And you can sign up at writerscentre.com.au slash news. Mm. Mm, 200 bucks. Yeah. Yeah, To spend a booktopia, Mm. all the excitement. What are you doing this week? Uh, Well... I've, as I said, I've got a few things on. So I'm actually I'm working on three different projects at the moment. Um, they're all at various stages, but I'm also uh, doing some edits on book three of the Mapmaker Chronicles. Um, so that's getting closer and closer, and I'm hoping that I might even have a cover to um, to see and share in the near future. So that's very exciting. It's it's kind of weird, you know, like when you've got three those three books coming out so close together. It's almost like you just sort of catch your breath from one and you're gearing up for the next one in a funny yeah. way. So book three is out on the 1st of October and um, oh I God. met lots of fans at the, um, which was kind of cool, lots of fans at the Sydney Writers Festival who are awesome. all like, Where's, we can't wait, we can't wait. Oh, like, wow. okay, you know, no pressure, okay. <laughs> you didn't give anything away, did you? Of course not. I give away nothing. Yeah. I give away nothing. Um, oh, I w- no, yep. I didn't go on. No, go no, on. no, that's it. I was just oh. going to say, so that's what I'm doing. So I'm hoping I'll have a few announcements and things to share in the next few weeks and we'll see what happens. Cool. Mm. Well, I just wanted to give a shout out to everyone who has just completed magazine writing stage two, actually. We're oh, it's exciting. Fi- yeah, we're in the fifth week of our course, so it's just finishing now. And, oh, you look, even in just this five weeks, at least eight people have gotten published. Oh, well, that's brilliant. Acceptances. One, I've actually, it's already in print um, and uh, the rest are in train and they've had acceptances from editors that we oh, know of so far. So very exciting. So, so it's obviously an excellent course, Valerie. There you go, yes. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so I guess that's us for this week. That's us for this week. So thanks for listening, everyone. You can find the show notes at writercentercomau slash podcast. If you have a question you'd like us to answer, please do email us, podcast at writerscentre.com.au. We'd love to hear you um, or we'd love to get your feedback or any um, uh, questions that you might have on social media where do we find you al uh you'll find me on twitter at at al tate t-a-i-t you'll find me on facebook at alison tate writer and you will always find me at alisontate.com which is my home on the internet yes and you valerie where do we find you uh instagram twitter everything as at Valerie Coo. <laughs> <laughs> okay, rub it in. <laughs> so thanks for listening, everyone, and we will talk to you next week. Bye. <laughs>